The rest of us turn to Galatians chapter 5. Verse 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We're looking at the fruit of the Spirit, and we're going to take two fruit, is it two, two fruit, two fruits, two fruities, each week. So today, we're going to look at love and joy. And these two are massive concepts. Each one of these, we could spend a whole series on. The Bible says so much about these two, these two character qualities, or these two things that we, that we could spend forever discussing them. So let me just say from the outset, um, our scope this morning is going to be pretty narrow. When, when we talk about love, we're only going to talk about a certain aspect of, of love. So we're, there are many things about love that we're not going to talk about that invariably, let me just tell you right now, as we talk about love, you're going to, start, you're going to find yourself saying, yeah, but what about this? And what about this scenario? Or what about what do I? What would I do here? Or what would I do there? And the reason for that is because love and joy are so huge and so expansive that we, it would be impossible to cover all of the nuances in one morning. So uh, everybody, are we, are we together on that? So I know you're going to want to say, yeah, what about this? What about that? And um, I, I, we have to narrow the scope here this morning. Uh, to, be, to really benefit and maximize our time. Um, so, uh, with that, we're going we're gonna to look at a, a certain aspect of love. And as I, as I thought about our church and uh, where most of us are coming from, most of us have been in a church, have been in the church for a, a, a long period of time or a significant period of time. And no doubt you've heard a lot of sermons on love or, or at least are aware of um, those who have waxed eloquent on agape, Love, and then we have phileo love and eros love. You know, all the different Greek words for love, and boy, you know they made great sermons. Um, you know, agape is God's kind of love. It's it's unconditional kind of love, and it always means that. Well, not always. Uh, that word is often used in contexts that didn't don't indicate un- unconditional love. So again, we we've heard all of that. Um, what I want to talk about this morning is not the what question of love, not what is love, but the who of love. In other words, who are we supposed to love? And, and again, you're going to find yourself saying, yeah, but what about this? What about that? Who are we supposed to love? Who does the Bible say that we're supposed to love? What's that? One another. What else? God. What else? Who else? Your neighbor. In fact, that issue of neighbor came up, if you turn now to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, because the first person we're supposed to love is the unlovely. We are to love the unlovely. 
Luke chapter 10. By the way, a, a parable that um, most people even in our culture have heard and, under, and have, are, are, are familiar with. And verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It was an interesting question. If someone posed that question to you, what would you say? How do I, how do I inherit eternal life? Yeah, I mean, we'd go right into the gospel, right? We'd, we, we, we'd have them walk the aisle and sign the card and... Uh, Look at Jesus' response to this question, to this man's question. He asked him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And this would have been important because he's an, he's an attorney. He's, he's a, what is the law? What does the law say? And he answered, you shall love, circle love, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and implied and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That's interesting. Jesus says, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, you will receive eternal life. Is that what he's saying? He's just saying, you know what, just be a loving person and you'll go to heaven. Just be a loving person. Well, not so quick. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied. And now he gets into this parable. A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, who might this, what ethnicity would this man have been? A Jew. He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. So everybody knows this was a common trip. This man was more than likely Jewish. This is going to be important. He goes from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus said, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. What's going on here? We have, we have three different groups. We have the man who is going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he has been critically wounded, critically injured um, by these robbers who, who have robbed him. And then coming down this path, there is a priest. And he approaches and he sees this body laying on the road. Now, what what are his dilemmas? Number one, he has some cultural issues that he's thinking through. Because what if this man is a Samaritan? Does everybody know the the relationship between Jews and Samaritans? They hated each other. Uh, The Samaritans were the descendants of um, when when the northern kingdom 
was taken into exile, Assyria sent people to populate Israel, and they intermarried with the Israelites in northern Israel, and they were the descendants of, of those people. That's why the Samaritans were considered half-breeds. They were, they were considered worse than tax collectors even. Jews hated Samaritans, and the feelings were mutual. So the priest has come along, he says, this guy's been stripped and beaten. Now why is it important that he said he was stripped? There's no identification. How, how they dressed was how they would, they would be able to identify people how they dressed. This man, this man could be unclean. He could be a Samaritan. So he had some cultural, maybe some cultural prejudices that he, that he, he had to work through. Not only that, but the Old Testament law said you, you can't touch what? A dead body. You become unclean. So maybe there were some religious taboos that he, that he was wrestling with. Do I, do I try to help this man? And what if he's dead and now I'm ritually unclean and I'm a priest? And then the Bible says a Levite came. A Levite served in the temple. Same thing. Same, same conundrums that they would have felt. And you know what? The original audience that heard this parable would not have faulted them a bit. They would have read this and said, well, of course you walk by. This man could be a Samaritan. This man could, this could have been a dead body. They would not have blamed them at all. And then in a sudden twist in this parable, he says, a Samaritan was coming along the road. Now, what possible conflicts could that Samaritan have had with this guy laying on the road? He's probably Jewish. I don't want anything to do with Jews. He might be dead. He might be a Jew. Not my problem. But a Samaritan is the one who stopped. And, and look, at, look at the degree in which he helped him. He, 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 he poured oil and wine. This, this would have been the equivalent of... Um, what, what was, when I grew up, what was that... Uh, it was like red dye stuff. Mercuricum? Or I, what was it? Iodine or mercuric. That was like anything they pour. And that always hurt worse than the injury. Bactine? <laughs> okay, it would be like him spraying Bactine on this guy's wounds, put him on his own animal, takes him to men, and takes all this time, takes a day out of his life, Make sure he's, and he says on the way back, if there are any other costs incurred, I'll pay for it. A Samaritan. You see, the robbers had no love. They displayed no love. The, the, the priest and Levite, they, they, they displayed kind of selective love. Oh, we, we, we will love my neighbor, but how did they define neighbor? Someone they a fellow Jew, a lovely person. Certainly not a, a a a body, an unlovely body laying on a road. The Samaritan's love was unconditional. And in, in essence, how did Jesus define love? And how did he define neighbor? Our love is to be for anyone and for everyone, especially the unlovely. Even if you're a Samaritan, even Jews, even Gentiles, okay, even Muslims. 
when you go to the grocery store and you see someone wearing the, I don't know if it's technically hijab. Hijab isn't a hijab like the full deal. What's a hijab? Just everything. Yeah. Okay. What, what, what's, it, what's in your heart? This is where we have to overcome some political and some cultural prejudices. The unlovely. What about some of us? And not, not I don't. Man, what about different ethnic groups? See, God is called. Our, our love is meant to be not just for the people we already find lovely, but for the unlovely. The who of, who of our love is to love your neighbor, whoever your neighbor is, whether they be pleasant, lovely, or whether they be very unpleasant. We're to love our neighbor, let's take it literally, whether, when, when he shoots off fireworks a week before 4th of July and two weeks after 4th of July, God calls us to love him in his immaturity in his incredible immaturity, to love them. He's unlovely. Number two, we were called to love the undeserving. Not just the unlovely, but the undeserving. Uh, Turn to Romans chapter 3, if you would, please. Not just the unlovely, but the undeserving. Romans chapter 3. Verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Do these people need, do they deserve to be saved? Is is unsaved humanity um, kind of this morally neutral mass of people? No. The Bible says that they are, in fact, none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. Their throat is an open grave. We just read it. Look over at chapter 5. Verse 6 makes it a little more personal. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Did he die for people who deserved it? Who did it say he died for? What does your Bible say? The ungodly. Jesus didn't say, okay, here's what, here's what you need to do. Uh, you, you need to kind of clean up your act a little bit. You need to deserve this. So you need to clean up your act and start being a good person and be sincere and do your, be, do your best. And No, we were ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. He's saying, listen, for someone who is really good and really righteous, someone might actually die for them. But, it's an important contrastive particle, but God shows His love for us, and what's the implication? Because we were not good, we were not righteous. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You didn't clean up your act, and He goes, okay, now you deserve it. In the midst of us not deserving His love, He gave us His love while we were still sinners. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were sick in your trespasses and sins. Oh, wait. What does yours say? Oh, dead. Dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature... Children deserving of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Did He make us alive and then love us? No. He loved us while we were in a state of sinful rebellion. He loved us. We did not deserve His love. God's kind of love loves the undeserving. That means the person that hurts you, you're to love them. The person who offends you, you're supposed to love them. The, the, The person who disappoints you, over and over and over again, you're to love them. Now, here's where we have some disclaimers. This doesn't mean that uh, we we love... Sometimes, I don't don't know that I'm speaking out of turn at this point, but sometimes my kids were just not very deserving of my love. I know you find that hard to believe. My kids were not deserving of my love. To this day, they do things that are not deserving of my love. But it doesn't mean that we let them do whatever they want. See, loving my children, even when they don't deserve it, doesn't mean I let them do whatever they want. Loving your children doesn't mean being indulgent. Love is not indulgence. Um, Abusive relationships is not a biblical expression of love. There, there, are, there are certainly limits to this. And these are all the what about this, what about that. But I'm talking about in terms of 
our basic approach to life, our basic approach to people, do we love those who are already lovely? Do we approach those who are already deserving of our love? In fact, Jesus addresses this. One more verse, Matthew chapter 5. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Verse 43. He says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do that? He's saying, listen, if you love people who already love you, what's the big deal? Why should you get a pat on the back for that? He says, I tell you, what really is... What really is uh, biblical and like God is when you love people who don't deserve your love. You need to love as if you've never been hurt. Now, that's going to take many different forms depending upon the context. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. But remember what we said. Ultimately, it's the Spirit that produces in this, but we have to do what? We have to actually do it. We have to as an act of our will, love those who are unlovely. We have to, as an act of our will, love those who are undeserving. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Number two, what about joy? Okay, now, I'm going to tell you right now, I know that we've gotten into this before. We're going to revisit it. I know that some of you disagree. I know this is going to, some of you never disagree with me, but uh, uh, what is joy? I'm going to tie my shoe. What is joy? Go ahead. This audience participation. I'm not going to say wrong. Well, what comes to mind when you hear the word joy? Happiness. What's joy? I looked it up. I looked at the dictionary. Let me read what the English dictionary has. An emotion of great delight or happiness. Now, here's, here's what happens. I press people on this all the time. I say, tell me, what's the difference between joy and happiness? And invariably, here's how they respond. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us we're supposed to be happy. Because happiness is just based on outward circumstances. And when the circumstances change, we're not happy anymore. But here's my question. Is that really distinguishing or explaining the difference between joy and happiness? What is that really distinguishing? The source of the happiness, not the thing itself. Uh, I've heard people say, well, joy is that, that inward sense of, of calm, that inward sense of everything is okay. Well, that, that, may, be, that may be comfort, that may be consolation. I, I guess what I, what I want to press us on is why are we so reticent to say that the fruit of the Spirit is we are happy people? Who should be the happiest people on this planet? Us. So when we make a distinction, make sure that you try to make a distinction between joy and happiness based on the substance of what those things are, not on what produces them. Because we would all agree that the key is what is not the nature of the emotion, but what produces that emotion. 
I think that many times what we're what we're trying to articulate is not a not a distinction between joy and happiness, but the distinction between happiness and mere frivolity. I think that's really what we're trying to distinguish. In other words, frivolity, this this trifling levity, there's there's really no substance to it. I think that's really what we're trying to distinguish. But really, the only difference between joy and happiness, both in terms of the biblical concept and even our modern day concept, is what source produces it. If our happiness is based on our money, our status, our position, our health, then our happiness will be temporary. But but I want to I, I want to force us that, that sometimes I think we. we we, we don't want to say happy because we don't want to be held accountable to that kind of uh, level of emotion. We are to be, all of your sins have been forgiven and you have eternal life. You should be the happiest person on earth. Be careful that you don't confuse distinguishing between source of that happiness which obviously we do see a distinction, and the substance of it. Again, we're not talking, happiness is not just an eternal emotion of well-being. That's contentment. That's peace. That's solace. That's consolation. But God wants us to be happy. The, the Hebrew term, ashrei, is, is, is from asher, which means happy. That God, the, the, in His inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts it in the, Plural, all the many happinesses of the person, and then he he fills in the blank. We're to be happy people. I'm talking about happy. Now, having said that, happiness does not preclude grief or sorrow. I, I, I was reading in First Peter, First Peter one six. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. First Peter one six. Well, let me start earlier, as I always do. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's we should be happy about that. To an inheritance that is imperishable and defiled, unfading, kept in heaven for that. We should be happy about that who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We should be very happy about that. Verse 6, and he says, In this you are happy. You rejoice. Though, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Happiness is, can, can be faked. Okay, let's be honest. Joy and happiness can be faked. We can walk into church, put a little smile on our face, we fake it. As Christians, we can fake joy. We can fake happiness. Being happy people doesn't mean that we never experience sorrow and we never express sorrow. God is not expecting us that in the midst of our sorrow, we just laugh and be happy. Sometimes we experience sorrow. Sometimes we experience grief. But we, do we do that from the standpoint of happy people? Joyous people who experience grief and sorrow and loss. Or from people who refuse to be happy and then experience sorrow, grief, and loss. 
Now, obviously, as we looked at last week, the source of these fruits is the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting, as I did a survey of the New Testament, and again, we could talk a lot about different kinds of sources. You know what one of the primary sources of our joy is that we see in the New Testament? Each other. Exactly right, Kelly. Relationships in the body of Christ. I just put, let's just look at a couple of these. There were, there were, it was amazing to me how many of these, what joy was associated with our relationship with each other. Our happiness was, is related to relationships in the bottle, body. 1 Thessalonians 2.19. Paul says to them, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our our Lord, is it not you? Our source of joy, our source of happiness, he says, is you. And he didn't just say that just because that was true of him, but that ought to be true of us. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. Same 1 Thessalonians 3, 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? It was relationships that brought him happiness. It was, it was the church, it was the relationships in the church that was the source of his happiness. Second uh, Timothy, well, I, we'll just keep moving to the right. Second Timothy 1. Second Timothy 1, 4. As I remember your tears, he's writing to Timothy, I long to see you that I may be filled with Happiness. That, that as we experience fellowship, I will experience happiness. Second John 12. Not the Gospel of John, but Second John 12. And we only say 12 because there's only one chapter. John says, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face. Why? So that our happiness may be fulfilled or complete. Again, there are certainly other sources, but it's, it was amazing to me how many um, texts related to joy as it pertains to relationships. It, 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 God designed it that way. Those people who, those Christians who live in, in, in isolation from community, I guarantee you will experience less joy and less happiness than those who do. Now again, uh, joy can be faked. Joy does not preclude there are seasons of grief and sorrow where we're not feeling particularly happy. I get that. I understand that. I experience that. Love and joy. So our conclusion, who are we to love? We're to love the unlovely. We may have to cross, we we may have to um, defy cultural prejudices or religious taboos. We're to love the unlovely and it's hard. 
and yes, the Spirit produces in my life, but I have to be willing as an act of my will to extend love. And oftentimes, I'm just not willing. You, under, you don't see like a halo around, do you? Okay. Um, I don't. And I, I would guess oftentimes you don't either. We're responsible. We can't just say, God, if you want me to love this person, you're going to have to give me love. Now, that's part of it. I, I, we need to pray that. God, make me willing to love this person. And, and again, that takes many different forms. We're to love the unlovely. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let everything you do be done from a motive of love. Joy. Joy is an emotion of happiness with the love of God and relationships within His body. And in Philippians 4, 4, he says what? Rejoice. What, is it? what does that mean? Be happy. And again I say, be happy. We have every reason in the world to be happy. Let me ask you a question. How different would our lives be if we experienced more love, extended more love, experienced more love, and experienced more joy? How qualitatively different if just of all the nine fruits, fruit, fruities, of all the nine, if just these two were qualitatively different in our lives, how different would our lives be? If we're the most loving people on the planet, if we're the most happy people on the planet, how different would our lives be? The Holy Spirit is the ultimate one who produces it in our lives. He builds that into us. And just like Philippians 2.12, what God is working in, we are to do what? Work out. Love the unlovely. Love the undeserving. Joy in all circumstances. Be happy. Let's pray. Father, we want to be loving, happy people. We of all people on this planet ought to be the most happy, loving people Father, I know the hesitancy. We, we don't want to be flippant. We don't want to be fake. We don't want our happiness and our love to be based on circumstances. In fact, they ought not to be based on circumstances. Father, we recognize that, that in many, if not most cases, our love and our joy is really counterintuitive. Our world would say you need to be Sad. Our world says, no, you need to not love. You need to get revenge. So, Father, help us, enable us, empower us, give us everything we need that we need to love more. And we need to make a decision of our wills to be happy, to have joy. Lord, help us to exhibit and to bear the fruit of the Spirit that you are working within us. Lord, we thank You for all that You do. And may we be indeed fruitful Christians with love and joy. And it's in Christ's name we pray.